The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We give thee thanks, O Lord our God, that in thy grace thou hast enlightened our minds and quickened our spirits uh, to enable us to lift up our hearts with our voices to thee, the triune God, and acknowledge that salvation comes from thee and thee alone. And we thank thee in particular for the one who procured it, even thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that consequently, worthily, he reigns exalted over all. We pray that his kingdom might be extended in the earth, and many who currently see no beauty in him worth desiring may be drawn to him, as thankfully thou hast drawn us. Receive our praise. Endear him to our souls more and more. Enable us more thoroughly to consecrate our minds, our affections, our wills to his blessed service and use us for his praise. For Jesus' sake, amen. Be seated, please. We read the opening three verses from Isaiah chapter 53. Let us hear the word of God. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So far we've been describing this portion of the book of Isaiah as a predictive poem, doing so because of its literary character, but also because of its intimate connection with the New Testament scriptures which fulfill it. Now I want to remind you that it is also described as a song. The last of the four servant songs in this particular book. And I remind you of that description of it because it presents us with a musical analogy by which to consider it. It is a symphony. It's an oratorio, in fact, vocal as well as orchestral. The sounds of the consonants, the rhythms between the words present us almost with notes. But then there are voices, too. Voices of various people, persons. Divine, human, rebellious, ignorant, 
appreciative, adoring. The opening of the few verses that we have read could be regarded as a duet. Who has believed our report? First person plural. Who are being referred to? The Lord, God himself, and Isaiah his prophet? Conceivably so. Toward the end of the song or the poem, the prophet himself speaks, and then climactically, the Lord himself declares the ultim- his ultimate verdict on the suffering of his son and describes the glories that should follow. Not surprising then that when Handel composed his Messiah, he took sections of Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53, of course, exceeds even the glories of that particular oratorio. Now, we've considered the overture, the report, if you like, the concluding verses of Isaiah 52, the Lord's announcement of his servant, declaration that he is faithful and wise and has done the work and consequently worthy of being exalted. That's in the major key. It's dominant. It's assertive. You can imagine the whole orchestra as well as the choir joining in. But there's a little phase in it, a little ripple, a minor note. Many were astonished. He's suffering more than the sons of men, and so on. And now, it's that more pensive, mournful note that is picked up in this first stanza, the second stanza, I'm sorry, of this particular poem. The minor key is valuable in Christian praise. Not only the major key, the minor key too. Because how else can rejection of such a glorious Messiah be depicted? How else can we give vent to the sin that is within our own minds and hearts and the darkness of our understandings that led us for a time as many others, to despise him and reject him. So here to begin with is the fact of unbelief. Not only was he dismissed as of no account whatsoever, but despised. He came unto his own, we are told, and his own received him not. Those who should have immediately recognized him didn't do so. The words he uttered, the deeds he did that should have identified him so clearly to those who had the Old Testament in their hands, they were deliberately misinterpreted and attributed not to the great wisdom and power of the Lord, but to the power of Satan himself. And here is Isaiah saying that it was so in his own day in the 8th century. The report that had been declared, who had believed it? And to whom had the arm of the Lord been revealed? Even before that, 
the promise and prediction of a coming Messiah had been rejected through unbelief. That mother promise, as we describe it, in the Garden of Eden had been set aside by Cain soon after it had been made known. And throughout the Old Testament history, it had been despised as more and more of the truth inherent in it had been unfolded. So that in Jesus' own day, John writing up the history could say, though many saw the signs he did, they did not believe in him that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Who has believed our report? And 30 years later, you remember, the apostle Paul said exactly the same thing of the Jews of his own day, quoting these verses in Romans chapter 10. But he goes that one step further. Not only is this true of the Jews, he had been making it known to the Gentiles. And he now says that that declaration, their words, their voice had gone out to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, and not been received. And so rejection of the prophetic apostolic report, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, had been dismissed in the Old Testament, dismissed in the New Testament times. Rejection of it today is not something new. We shouldn't be thrown by that as if this report were not true. Nor should we be unmoved by it because unbelief of the gospel is the greatest self-harm that can possibly be done by any individual and perhaps some of our own relatives, some of our own family members, see no beauty in him worth desiring. Can't understand why you're here, why you're wasting your life. Don't conclude from that that there's something wrong with what you believe. Remember the words of the apostle, if our gospel is hidden, and he goes on to say, it doesn't mean it's no gospel at all. If our gospel is hidden, it's hidden from those who believe not, in whom the God of this world has blinded their minds. Human unbelief is the most appalling blindness and hardness of heart. Is there any explanation for it? Well, the prophet, in the name of the Lord, provides an explanation of it, and God be thanked, he provides a solution to it too. We can't say there's a reason for it, because rejection of the Messiah is the most irrational thing that a human being could possibly do. But there are two factors here that go, shall we say, some way toward explaining it. The first is this, that he was not recognized and received because of what he looked like. They set him aside because of what they saw of him. Now, it's clear that they looked, and we are told that having seen what they saw, 
they hid their faces from him. There was something about him that was appalling, which made them want to see it no longer. There was nothing attractive about him, even something repulsive about him. Not only something incongruous, but nothing attractive at all. We're told that there was no form or majesty about him. He was very, very ordinary. He's described here as a young plant or a young child. There were other boys in Nazareth at the time. And his name was ordinary. Joshua in the Hebrew. He was like a green stalk in a dust bowl. In contrast to the mighty cedar and a green plant. Where had he come from? Nazareth, Galilee of the Gentiles. And he was poor. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. And the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't make a great stir and call people's attention and dragoon them to follow him. He didn't lift up his voice or cause a tumult in the streets, Isaiah 42 tells us that about him. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Nazareth, brothers, sisters, who's he? Where does he get this wisdom from? And there he did no mighty work because of their unbelief. And what conceivably could have been in their minds when they said, we were not born of fornication? Were they casting a slur upon his having been not born of a human father? That's how they regarded him. There was nothing about him that was regal. Both the first kings of Israel had something distinctive about them to draw the attention of people to them. Saul was head and shoulders above every other Israelite. And then David, when Samuel called for him and he was brought, David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Form comeliness. There was nothing like that about Jesus. No form or majesty. He wouldn't have had star rating in any list that people draw up today. Instead, sorrows, grief, no form, no comeliness. What marked him out was sorrow, sorrow and grief. The picture gets worse, you see. He was frail with a weight of sorrow and sadness. Not, not, not sickness, but sadness. He was among men, but he was a man that they did not regard and respect. There was a loneliness about him. He wasn't a recluse, but he was no hail fellow well met. He wouldn't have been the first choice for a party. We don't read that he ever laughed. That doesn't mean he didn't. It, doesn't, it means that the important thing for us to know in the estimate of God was that he wept. 
because the still sad music of humanity was constantly ringing in his ears. Here was a veritable Job and a Jeremiah. The term is used for lepers. Not that he was a leper, but he was an outcast, disregarded by men. King, servant of the Lord, the Messiah, impossible. You remember Gamaliel could say in Acts chapter 5, about Theudas and Judas the Galilean. These were the messiahs that were being looked for. Raise a rebellion against Rome. Gather a following. Make a protest. Expel the Roman. There was nothing like that about him at all. Nothing whatsoever. And so he didn't qualify. Because of what they saw, they dismissed him. But there's another reason, isn't there? They dismissed him because of what they hadn't seen. Uh, There was something about him that they hadn't seen. He shall grow up before him. There was a hidden life there. A life of intimate fellowship and communion with his heavenly father whose directives he heard and readily, fully complied with day after day, always doing those things that pleased him. He had a hidden life. He was the incarnate Son of God. And not only was that not seen, but they didn't see the Lord in relation to him. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, his power. It's referred to in the previous chapter. It was by his mighty power exerted that Israel was brought out of Egypt. And here what the prophet is saying is that in this Jesus of Nazareth, the arm of the Lord, the mighty redemptive power of the Lord that delivers his people from sin and guilt and hell is present, but it wasn't seen. Sin is blindness. Sin is a wisdom that is in reality folly. Sin is a, weakness. Sin is a power that in reality is weakness. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's why he was set aside. What they saw with their eyes what they didn't see. But is that the end as far as these verses are concerned? Or is there the beginning of a dawn? Is there the beginning of the arm of the Lord being revealed? Because all this is in the past tense. And those being referred to are initially those Jews that came to realize how wrong they were. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Is there the beginning of reflection? Is there the dawn of a better mind? Yes. Because of what immediately follows. 
We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. But, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace, smitten so that we might not be condemned, cursed that we might be blessed. Have you seen him like that? Can you look back on your past, however long it's been, however short it was before you came to know him, and realize there was a time when you saw no beauty in him worth desiring. But now, to you who believe, is preciousness itself. Let us pray. Lord our God, we give thee our thanks for that revelation of thyself and thy grace and mercy with power in thine incarnate Son, in his earthly life, in all his sufferings and sorrows. And we also thank thee. And we, we almost think that this is a greater kindness on thy part than even to send him, to give us eyes to see him, hearts and minds to trust in him, wills to bow before his feet and crown him, Lord of all. Receive then our thanks, extend the sway of his reign, north, south, east, and west, and use us and this seminary in that purpose of thine to gather out thy people from every kindred tribe and tongue and nation so that he might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Receive our thanks. Keep us humble. Grant us joy and peace. Make us thankful. Give to us a greater willingness to do his bidding promptly. For Jesus' sake, amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.